All right. Um, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth director here. So it's good to be with you all this morning as we gather for worship. Um, children, if they have a class, are dismissed. And then if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5 this morning. So while you're making your way there, I'd like to share with you the key truth for our sermon this morning. Um, and this really is just another way of saying what we just sang in that last song, um, that God's mercy is more um, another way to put that, though, that we'll see this morning is that God compassionately restores us when we go astray and draws even the most unlikely people to himself in Christ. His mercy truly is more. And so again, we're going to be reading Jonah 3, 1 through 5. I'll read the text for us, and then afterwards I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will get to respond, thanks be to God. So if you would, uh, go ahead and, and hear this morning God's word for us, his people. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And this is the word of the Lord. So at this point in Jonah's story, this is the turning point in the book and in his story. Um, in terms of literary features, the book of Jonah is probably one of the most stylistic books in the Old Testament. It has a lot of uh, very purposeful word choice. As we saw in the first half, Jonah's disobedience, his rebellion leads him further down and away from God's presence. He goes down to Tarshish, down into the belly of the boat, down into the heart of the sea, down into the belly of the fish. And we see, too, that just structurally, there's a lot of parallels as well. Verse 1 of chapter 3 is a very close parallel to verse 1 of chapter 1. That's on purpose. It's to show the contrast between how God's word came to Jonah the first time and how it will now come the second time. And we've seen then in Jonah's story so far how he responded to that first call. He ran away. God's word comes, and he runs away. He tries to get away from God's presence. He tries to escape the purpose he's been given and his disobedience, his rebellion, leads him very, very far astray, not from God's presence, um, but from certainly a life that you would want to uh, experience and live. He finds himself ultimately hurled overboard by these sailors who try to spare him, and then he, in, in the heart of the sea, as he's sinking down to the depths, this giant fish comes along and swallows him whole. And then in the belly of the fish, as he is being humbled and disciplined by God's severe mercy, he remembers God's goodness. He turns to God in prayer. He makes vows. And then three days and three nights later, he's vomited up on the seashore, um, just like that. And at that point, if this were a movie, the screen would fade to black. It'd kind of go quiet. Maybe you'd hear like the sounds of the seashore. And you'd be left with a moment to think, like, what just happened to Jonah? This first half of the story. And for us, before we get into the second half, I think it's worth taking that moment to pause and reflect on what just happened. Because this story is very, very well known. Some of us, we saw it on a flannel board as a kid. Maybe you saw it in Veggie Tales. But like, this has captured our imagination for good or for ill. And maybe you've, you've experienced some new details in the story. Where you're like, wow, I never made that connection before. That's awesome. But the point of this story is not just for us to be like, wow, that's awesome. That's a really cool story. It's supposed to shape us. Jonah's example is supposed to not only get in our imagination, but get into our lives 
And so I'd like to ask you as we start out this morning, what did you do when you sinned this past week? We ask the question a lot, when you sin, which way do you run? And a lot of us would say, oh, I know, I know intellectually that when I sin, I should run to God's throne of grace. But in fact, this past week when you sinned, because we all, we all sinned this past week, what did we do? Did we have Jonah's example in our mind, and did we um, hear his example and not run away from God's presence like he tried to do, and did we run quickly to God's throne of grace? And the reason we've got to ask that question is because you also have to ask, how is that affecting your love for your God and for your neighbor? Because if we don't run to God when we have sinned, then we will commodify his love, we will cheapen it, we'll treat it like a cheap good that we can get whenever we want, and it will grow stale in our hearts. And we probably won't be very good at loving our neighbors either because we won't be very real with ourselves before the Lord. So how can we be real with anybody else? And so this story, again, it's meant to shape the way we relate to God and to others. And so what effect has it had on you so far? Now, with that in mind, let's look then at the the second half of the story. As we start out this morning... We're going to start looking at uh, Jonah 3, 1 through 3, and see how God restores Jonah to himself and to the purpose he had given him. So the setting, it seems largely the same as it was in chapter 1. God's word again comes to Jonah. And this time, God does change things slightly. Um, He doesn't just say, go call out against Nineveh. Now he says, tell him exactly what I tell you to, Jonah. There's no room for error here. You've got to say what I tell you to say. And this time, rather than up and running away, Jonah arises and he goes. And the text is very specific. It says he goes according to the word of the Lord. He's not necessarily being reluctant. Although um, we know the end of the story, we might be reading cynically into him, sort of this hesitation, all right, fine, I'll go. It says he goes according to the word of the Lord. And so he has been changed to a degree at this point in the story, and he obeys the call. But we need to use our imagination at this point in the story because I think it's actually because of the way the narrative moves. A lot of Old Testament narratives are very fast, and this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's really easy to overlook the, the gravity of what just happened. Um, for me, until I studied the story this time, and I've studied it a couple times before, but I've never really looked at the map. Um, I, I ought to have. This is why they put maps in your Bible. But I've always, in my imagination, just pictured the fish vomiting Jonah up on the shore not too far from Nineveh, and then he gets up, and God's like, hey, go into the city and do what I told you to. But geographically, that's impossible. Um, for starters, Nineveh's not a coastal city. So unless that fish had like some serious gut power, he did not spit Jonah up on the shores of Nineveh. Like That didn't happen. Um, and also, Tarshish, where he was going, um, if you have Israel, Tarshish is out in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh's in present-day Iraq. Tarshish was in present-day Spain. So the fish would have vomited up somewhere on the shore of the Mediterranean. Um, whether that was closer to Israel or closer to Tarshish, we don't know. But odds are, he somehow found himself uh, back in Jerusalem. He worked his way back to Israel. And maybe he even made good on the vows he made to God in the belly of the fish. Um, but either way, some time has passed. Some extra journey has been taken. And then God's word comes to him again. And then he has to up and go He has to take the journey he was originally given. In other words, this second chance was not a shortcut. The fish didn't do the work for Jonah. It was a severe mercy that preserved his life. But he is restored to God, and he is restored to another opportunity to heed the call on his life. And that's important for us 
Because if you're like me, a lot of times you want your second chance to be like the way a sitcom ends. You know, you have 20, 20 to 22 minutes of just chaos unfolding on the screen, and then there's a commercial break, and then the last two minutes of the show, something magical happens, and everything's wrapped up, and it's neat and tidy, and they don't have to deal with the consequences of what just happened. But God's grace to us is a lot better than that, because he's not asking us to be passive robots that he's just going to download grace 2.0 into our hearts and fix everything with the snap of his fingers. When God restores us to himself, he's inviting us to a way of life in his presence. He's restoring Jonah to a genuine second chance to do the meaningful work he had set apart for Jonah to do, and Jonah now gets to do that. There's no shortcut here. It's going to take effort, but it is good because the failure that could have defined Jonah forever does not at this point get to have the final say. And that is true of us in Christ. Our sin does not get to have the final say, but we are restored to God so that his grace now defines everything we get to do and the story can go on towards a much better ending. And so I love, um, if you look in the bulletin, I've got a quote in here from O. Palmer Robertson. I love the way he describes this. He says, God forgets and never holds the thing against you Think of how wonderful are the implications of that one fact for your life. God simply does not hold grudges against people who humble themselves and ask his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Men have a much greater problem forgiving and forgetting than does God. You may discover that you have a very difficult time forgetting your mistakes of the past, but God does not have that kind of trouble. And amen that that is true. That the Lord our God, his mercy is more, and he has no problem forgiving and forgetting our sins in Christ. That he can take a prophet like Jonah, who, who is foolish enough to try to escape his presence and ignore his call, and he can restore him to himself and send him on the same mission once again. How amazing is it that our God can bring us here this morning despite all we've done this past week? And he wants you to be here this morning, singing praises to his name, celebrating that, yeah, his mercy is more than whatever sin you've done. I can't help but think of um, Psalm 103 as I think of, of this truth where actually the psalmist is meditating on Exodus 34. He's meditating on God's compassionate character. He says, um, to summarize a little bit of it, he says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jonah tried to get far away from God's presence, but he couldn't do it. And the distance he traveled was nothing compared to the distance God puts between us in Christ and our sin, which was once upon us. He separates us from that and restores us to himself. And then Micah, another uh, minor prophet in the Old Testament, in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, as he wraps up his book, he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He's also meditating on God's character and he says, he does not, he, God, does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, God, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And that, I think, is pretty amazing to think about in light of Jonah's story. Because think about how Jonah is literally hurled into the sea and he's sinking down to the depths, but he never hit the bottom. Yes, he was good as dead in the belly of the fish, but the fish was a severe mercy that spared him and that sanctified him and that changed him for his good and God's glory. 
And think about how the one who is greater than Jonah, who points to the sign of Jonah as, as an example in, in part of what his work would be, how Jesus descends into the belly of the earth, into the grave for three days and three nights, taking with him the full weight of our sin. He takes that down to the grave with him, and yet he emerges and our sin stays behind. Sort of like Jonah goes into the, into the sea, and yet he emerges and his failures stay behind, and he is restored to God for the second chance. That is true of you if you are in Christ. Your sin has been cast into the sea and you have been spared the judgment that was to come. And so I ask again, how has God warned you about your sin in your life? He's doing it now, honestly, because you're hearing his word right now. And so an even more important question is, are you listening to his gracious warning? Note that God's warnings are gracious. He warns us um, not to be that guy who comes to your house. I'm often that guy um, who reads all the labels on your food and is like, oh, man, I don't know if you should eat that. And then, you know, you're just left feeling bad about everything you have in your pantry. Like, that's not how God's warning works, where he just makes you feel bad about everything you're doing and doesn't do anything to actually sustain and nourish you. God's warning is always coupled with an invitation. The way God's warnings work is he's saying, don't run from me as judge the way Jonah does. Run to me as your father. Yes, leave behind your sin because it is going to kill you, but come to me because I will heal you. I will satisfy you. I will fulfill you. I will never cast you out. And so when I ask, are you listening to his gracious warning, I'm also asking, are you listening to his gracious, his good, his compassionate invitation to know him? The way Jonah had come to know the Lord and has now been restored to him in his everyday life, in his calling as a prophet. Because that calling now gets to be fulfilled. And as we look at the other half of verse three and then on through verses five, um, Jonah gets to go on mission to Nineveh. And the text, it takes a moment to describe this city, Nineveh. And so if you know anything about Nineveh, you know it is the capital of Assyria. And if you know anything about the Assyrians, they were bad dudes. They were rough and tough and very violent and they were scary. And yet this city is described as exceedingly great. And at first you're like, well, yeah, it's a capital city. It must have been great. If you have an ESV and probably a lot of other translations of the Bible, though, you will see a footnote there. And it says, uh, it could also be in Hebrew, a city great to God. And that's interesting because it's an idiom here. The, the translators of the Bible, they, they dispute as to what exactly this phrase means. Is it talking about just how big, how exceedingly great Nineveh is? Or is it maybe saying this city is important to God? And I think there's something to that. Because you have to understand this would have been incredibly subversive for any Israelite, any Jew to hear this. Because to them, Nineveh is awful. It's sort of like, you know, in Star Wars when Obi-Wan and Luke are looking out of Mos Eisley and he's like, that's a den of villainy and scum. Like, don't go there. It's dangerous. Like, the Israelites would have felt like that times 10 about Nineveh. They would have been like, that is a horrid place. That's where all the bad guys are. They hate us. They're our enemies. Like, there is nothing good that would come out of Nineveh. If you're good and you go into Nineveh, you will never come out. Stay away. It is God forsaken. And yet, by this idiom that it's a city great to God, God is saying, no, it's not God forsaken. It is important to me. There's no square inch of this world, no city, however bad it may seem socioeconomically or militaristically, there is no city that escapes God's esteem because it is part of his world and it is part of his mission. 
that ought to challenge us that when we think of a person or a place and we think it just seems God forsaken, what could, could be done there? What could change? What hope do they have? Why should I bother investing in that with my prayer or my time or my focus or my money and my resources? We ought to remember that God sends this runaway prophet to a place that his people would have hated. And he does so with great effect. The text also describes Nineveh's size, and it says that it was three days' journey in breadth. Um, and there's a lot of ink that's been spilled in the commentaries about, was Nineveh actually that big, or is this hyperbole, and trying to make a point? And we could dig into that in the Q&A session in a couple weeks when you can just fire all your questions at me and Robbie will be an awesome time. And we could dig into that then if you'd like. But I think the point to see now is that there's a contrast between the fact that it's a, a city that's three days' journey in breadth, and then when Jonah starts his mission, when he gets there, it says he began to go into the city going a day's journey. So it's three days' journey wide, and he only gets one day's journey in to his mission. And at first, the cynic in me looks at that and it's like, well, yeah, of course, it's Jonah. Like, he doesn't want to do this. He's only going to do the bare minimum to say he went and he preached this message and this message is very terse, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Like that's, that's all we're told that he said. And maybe there was more, but I think because the text doesn't criticize Jonah for saying that, it may actually be that this is the heartbeat of what God told him to say. Because remember, he's gone so far according to God's word. We know Jonah is not perfect. We know he's still got a lot of growing to do, and we're going to see that in a couple of weeks. But for now, I think the reason there's that contrast drawn between the, the city is three days' journey wide and Jonah only gets one day's journey in is not actually to say Jonah's just kind of begrudgingly doing the bare minimum. I think it's to say that the Ninevites are so prepared to hear this message that Jonah doesn't even have to get all the way through the city. They do the rest of the job for him because they start to hear this word and they get revved up and they start telling each other until the whole city knows and they don't even care about Jonah at that point. They believe God. They have heard and a lot of historians have pointed out that, that Nineveh and Assyria as an empire, in the ebb and flow of its history, it will have a, a, a high point again, and it's had high points before, but right now it's in the valley. It's in a low point. Uh, militaristically, uh, financially, it was not doing as well as it had done. Um, they were in a famine. They were in drought. There may have been things they would have interpreted as omens. Um, there had been an earthquake and an eclipse. So all of these things to them, in their religion, they would have been freaking out like, what did we do to make the gods so angry. And then in comes Jonah, one guy, one prophet from Yahweh, and he declares this message. And so in God's sovereignty, in his providence, he prepared this city to hear from Jonah and to believe this message and to ultimately believe God. And so we see then, as this story is unfolding here, and a remarkable principle um, of, of just how God works in the life of his people for the life of the world. Um, Sinclair Ferguson describes it like this. He says, if the principle behind Jonah's restoration is God's overarching sovereign grace, then the principle which lies behind the events which were to follow in Nineveh was this. God intends to bring life out of death. Fruitful evangelism is the result of this death-producing life principle. It is when we come to share spiritually and on occasions physically in Christ's death that his power is demonstrated in our weakness and others are drawn to him. 
So this was true in Jonah's case. He had been brought near unto death and now is sent unto Nineveh to speak new words of life to them. This was true of Jesus Christ as he took on death in full and comes out emergent, victorious in the resurrection and ascension and sending out his spirit to bring life to his people. And it is true in the life of our church. When we die to ourselves, when we die to our comfort, our safety, our security, and we, we, we lean in and befriend someone for years, maybe, you know, sometimes you think grandly, you think, oh, you know, and we go out in the street corners and proclaim, and maybe that's you, but maybe the way you die to yourself is you, you stand by someone for a really long time through a lot of really hard stuff, and you consistently minister to them and see the Lord's compassionate mercy take root in their life. But the amazing thing about the Ninevites and the way they respond in the midst of all of this is just the fact that they do respond so excitedly to this message. There is a prophetic ambiguity in what Jonah says. The word overthrown is ambiguous in the Hebrew, a little bit even more so than in the, in the um, English, because it could mean overthrown as in you stay stubbornly violent, you don't listen at all, and God wipes you out. But it could also mean you turn back. You listen to the message, and it doesn't say anything yet about what God will do. We'll get into that next week and see how he responds to their response. But the point is, it's ambiguous. They don't know how this is going to play out for them, and yet they respond with such zeal and faith. They listen. And so what about us? Because we get to hear, week in and week out, a better word than Jonah's message to Nineveh. There is no prophetic ambiguity about the gospel. We heard it in our assurance of pardon. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no doubt as to what God will do to those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will receive and experience his grace and mercy. And so, for me, as prepared to to preach this text, it was just humbling to compare my so often lackluster response to the gospel I've, I've been blessed by the Lord and have grown up in the church, have heard it pretty much every Sunday my whole life and all throughout the week. And so often I'm like, eh, you know, let's talk about the Mandalorian. That, that will get me excited, you know, or something like that. And, you know, we can chuckle, but that's, that's us. That's us. And then here are these Ninevites, these pagans that God's people would have been like, Man, what are they doing? They don't even deserve the word of the Lord. They deserve this wrath, and yet they believe it. So what about us? Do, do you, I ask you quite directly, do you believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if so, do you live as though the gospel is a treasure that is worth sharing with others because it is so good and because it does have power to change people? And this question, um, there are actually a lot of ways to ask this question. Do you believe the gospel? Um, some of us, we need to ask this question because, yeah, we've grown up in the church and it can get stale and the things we confess with our lips that we believe, our hands and our feet and our lips most of the week, don't match up to that. And we need to be, we need to be sobered up. And we need to wake up and see how we, in just the way we're living our lives, despite the fact that maybe we come to church a lot, we're not living this. Maybe we don't believe the gospel. Or maybe our belief needs to be revitalized by an experience afresh with the gospel. But some of us, also need to ask this question in the exact opposite direction because some of us, we hear this question and internally you're melting down right now and you've got like a million red alarms going off. And we panic and our hearts drop in our chest and our blood freezes 
because we're so terrified that maybe I'm not what I think I am. Maybe I don't believe hard enough. Maybe that sin I haven't confessed truly enough. And you're terrified at the thought that maybe you're not actually a Christian. And if that's you this morning, um, one, don't, don't doubt your faith. Because remember, the gospel is not about your faith. You receive the gospel through your faith, but the gospel is about Jesus Christ and him only. You need to ask this question um, not to freak out and interrogate yourself, but you need to ask this question simply so you can fall asleep at night or get up in the morning or just have peace throughout the day. You need to ask this question because as you ask, do I believe, not don't emphasize do I believe, but do I believe the gospel? The gospel that says that Jesus is king and that his grace and mercy is enough for you so that when your thoughts are berating you and you're freaking out about your past or you can't sleep at night because you loathe yourself, you can say to yourself, chill out. Jesus is king and he's got me even though I don't got me. I can go to sleep or I can get up today and I can live this day even though I'm struggling to see the point. I believe the gospel and that means that there's more to this life of mine than I can see because I am in God's hands and Christ is in me and I am in him. And then a last way to ask that question, do you believe the gospel, is if you know you're not a Christian this morning. And first of all, if that's you this morning, one, thank you for being here. Um, It is uh, awesome that you would come and join us for worship. That's a courageous thing to do as you're exploring these things and wrestling with a lot of questions. And so when I ask you that question, I'm not trying to manipulate you and make you feel something or do something. I'm not gonna do an altar call or anything like that. Um, I'm just saying, uh, one, thank you for being here, and two, what do you think about all this? Um, real talk, what do you think about it? Um, I'm sure you've got a lot of questions. Have, have you found a place to give voice to them and to wrestle with them? And if not, we would love to be that place for you. You could grab me after the service. I'll be hanging out up here. You could grab anyone on staff. Um, as Jonathan th- said, anybody who just looks like they might be a regular, even if not, um, we would love to be a place where you can wrestle with those questions, not so we can pump you full of answers, um, but simply so you can have a place where your story can be heard and you can hear uh, better the story of Jesus Christ because we do believe it's something we're sharing and we would love to do that with you. And so for all of us, though, I think we need to hear what Anthony Carter says as we think about that question. He says, as long as you have breath in your lungs and a beating heart, you have another chance. No matter how great the sin, the grace of God is greater I know it may sound strange, but in an ironic and yet glorious way, your sin magnifies the grace of God. Sin is great, but grace is greater still. It may be hard to get our minds around that truth, but that's because it's hard for us to grasp the power, love, and magnitude of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here is something even greater to understand. Indeed, your sin may magnify the grace of God, but your repentance and turning away from sin, magnify it even more. And so if, as you ask that question, you realize, I don't know if I believe as much as I I say I do, then be restored to the joy of your salvation this morning. Let us pray with you, and know that that Christ covers, his grace covers even your your foulest hypocrisy and and staleness. If you are are just buffered by doubt, then, then, then let Christ's grace and you're turning away from that and turning into his peace, let that soothe your heart this morning. And if you're not a Christian, then maybe even this morning, then you could turn and know him 
and have your life changed. But for us as a church, do we think in these ways? Do we recognize that, yeah, despite the architecture of this room, that something could happen here to change your life forever? Even, even on the regular basis of Sunday after Sunday, you can come, we come here and we are called here by God so that he can minister to us through his word, through the means of grace, through the gathering of his people. And that even here, the fruit of evangelism can happen. That within these walls in this building with its creaky HVAC system and leaky ceiling and velvet curtains, something could happen that would cause heaven to break out in a party. Do we pray for that? Do we long for that as a church? Because the amazing thing is we don't have to go one day's journey into the city like Jonah did. We have our neighbors all around us, in our families, in our workplaces. So let us as a church be inspired and shaped by this story And let us be shaped in our prayers, too, to long for those kinds of things. And so as we wrap up, we see that Jonah 3, 1 through 5 teaches us that, first of all, God compassionately restores us to himself when we go astray. You can't escape him. Jonah's proof of that. I'm not saying God's going to send a fish to swallow you whole, but I am saying that even in the daily grind of just ordinary life, when you feel like there's nothing just meaningful around you and everything's boring, that you have not escaped God's presence and he can restore you to himself. Number two, we see God compassionately draws even the most unlikely people to himself. There is no God-forsaken person alive at this point. God can reach anybody here. It is not for us to know in his eternal decree whom he will call to himself. It is for us to heed his call on our lives and to go out and share the gospel. And so let us, let us never count anybody out because he's not yet returned. He wants the family to get bigger. And then lastly, God restores and draws us to himself so that he might use us to draw others to himself. Again, we've been saved so that we can be disciples who make disciples, so we can participate with effort, yes, but also with great joy in this mission. mission. Because again, the message we get to share is so much better than yet 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. The message we get to declare is, yet even now, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you too shall be saved. And so with that in mind, would you pray with me this morning? Oh Lord, God, our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks that, um, Lord, you, you do so much uh, through us, your people, Lord. We're not an efficient bunch. Um, we're not the latest model and uh, we don't have, Lord, all the features Um, we're broken and bent and we need a lot of your patience, Lord, and a lot of your compassion. And yet we're thankful, Lord, that despite all we've done this past week, despite the things we've done maybe a long time ago and we've just never been honest with you about, Lord, despite those things, you love us. You've brought us here, that we could hear your word this morning, that we could sing great songs of joy about how much greater your mercy is than our sin. Lord, may that not just be a song we sang this morning, but that be a truth that shapes our lives. Help us not to leave this place, Lord. Um, shrouded in guilt. Help us, Lord, to leave uh, just joyous because of your mercy. And Lord, I pray that you would continue your work through us, your church, to draw people to yourself, Lord, in this area, in Kennesaw, in Ackworth, in Canton, in Marietta, Cartersville, Lord, all the places we're from in this area. Would you use us as salt and light, Lord? Would you Uh, reinvigorate us every day, Lord. We thank you that your mercy is new every morning. Your compassion is fresh to us because you don't change. We get to experience that new every day because we change so much and yet you are there. So I thank you, Lord. I pray that, uh, that you would help us this week, God, to run quickly to you in times of need. 
Would you continue to shape us through this story? And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.